Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You too can become a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. All the links for all the stuff is down in the show notes below. Oh boy, yeah, crazy, crazy week. Crazy things going on, lots of exciting things going on, so we're going to just jump right into the topics. I'm hoping today that we are going to do a lot of questions, questions from patrons. I have tons of questions in this notes. We're not going to get nearly to all of them, but I'm very excited to, to talk about them. So yes, I am launching, I have launched a Kickstarter. I am currently in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign for the Lazy DMs Companion. The Lazy DMs Companion is a book of tools and guidelines and inspirational generators to help you prepare and run 5e games. It's a book I've been working on for about a year uh, and I'm very excited about it. The Kickstarter is doing very well. I'm, I'm very excited the Kickstarter is doing well, but I'm most excited about getting this book put together and getting into your hands. If you would like to join the Kickstarter, you can, let's see, put that in the, look at that. There you go. You can back the Kickstarter. There are links in the show notes below to back the Kickstarter and all kinds of fun things going on there. So yeah, it's the first time, not only can you pick up the Lazy DM's Companion, this new book, which is the third of the Lazy DM book series, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's Workbook, and the Lazy DM's Companion. You can also pick up the other two, and for the first time, all of them are going in print. So we are gonna do a full print run of all three books in three different formats, hardcover for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, spiral bound for the Lazy DM's Workbook, and softcover for the Lazy DM's Companion. And you can pick them all up during this Kickstarter. So very very exciting stuff. Probably the big news there. Let's see. I go to YouTube and we go to, go to my channel and we go to videos. So if you go right here is the the lazy so so the second Q&A video. So I've done I've done two different Q&A videos, hour-long videos. I'll paste that into the chat. Hour-long videos where we where I talk about the book and I answer all, any and all questions from people that are supporting the Kickstarter or are interested in supporting the Kickstarter. So you can uh, watch those Q&A videos. Here's a little hack for you. If you go down here, I have linked every single question, every single topic about the Kickstarter that was answered during the show. And there are two of these. There's Q&A 1 and Q&A 2. Next week on Thursday, I'm very likely to do a video in which we use the tools from the Lazy DMs Companion to actually build an adventure. I want to probably spend an hour building an adventure, using the tools that are there, thinking about how to how to go through it, what to build, how to build all parts of it. So we'll do like the eight-step Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master process to build probably like the equivalent of a one-shot adventure using material from the Lazy DMs Companion to actually do it. So that'll be that'll be really that'll be really fun. I'm excited. I'm excited to do that. So that will be this coming Thursday. I don't know what the date is. Somebody tell me the date in the chat. What else do we have going on? So that's the, the Kickstarter is probably the, obviously the biggest thing that's going on with me right now. It's exciting. It's cool. I'm very excited for it. So the other big piece of news is tomorrow we're going to have another show. So tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, this channel will be hosting the Mastering Dungeons podcast with my friend Sean Merwin. So Teo Sabadia is not able to do the show tomorrow. Sean Merwin and Teo Sabadia, Sean Merwin and Teo Sabadia, two very good friends of mine 
mine, run an excellent podcast called Mastering Dungeons. You can you can download it in all of your favorite podcast apps. And Teos is not able to make tomorrow's show, and Sean was very gracious in inviting me to join him on the show. And I said, that would be awesome. And by the way, would you be interested in how would you feel about me streaming it to Twitch when we do it? And he said, I don't see any problem with that at all. So that means on his side, he'll be recording the podcast, and on my side, I'll be broadcasting it to Twitch, and hopefully putting it together and getting it up on YouTube as well. Which means, yeah, it means you can watch it live. I think it'll be the first time that Mastering Dungeons will have been on live. So I'm very excited for that. What it means is that in today's show, I'm less likely to talk about all of the big news that has happened in the past week with D&D, because we're going to talk about it on the Mastering Dungeons podcast, where there's a great big news segment. Such news things like the the Sage Advice article uh, that Wizards of the Coast put out talking about the new monster stat block stuff. That came out this past week. Very interesting things there. The most recent Unearthed Arcana that had all of the new Spelljammery kind of races in it. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that tomorrow. So there's lots of interesting bits of lots of interesting bits of news that have occurred, and we're going to talk about all of that on tomorrow's show. Tomorrow at 1 p.m. on Twitch, we're going to talk about that. So today is going to be probably a little bit more of sly flourish pontification of things we'll see there's been a topic that i've had on the list for like three weeks i'm totally like the last person to get involved in the topic because it was like a big deal on twitter but i think it's an interesting one and i wanted to talk about it and we'll, we'll get to that a bit obviously the big news about the core books the new core books coming out in 2024 the 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 the, the conversation and the zeitgeist is still going on about what that means and what that's going to look like and what they're going to do and how is it going to change the hobby and all of this stuff. Are there hot takes? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, there's always a hot take. I don't know if there's going to be a hot take immediately or not. We'll have to, we'll have to see. There'll be some kind of hot take, I'm sure. I'll get excited about something, I'm sure. One of the thoughts, so I have I have some designer friends, some 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 veterans in the D&D design space that I, that I talk to, and uh, we love to chat about all the news, and it's a fascinating group to talk to because everybody's got such a tremendous amount of experience in this hobby. And, and then you, you, of course, read what is up on Twitter and what's up on Reddit and what's up on all the other places about this stuff. And one of the interesting things, so everybody's trying to find a metaphor in the past for what this means. They're trying to say, is this like when second edition kind of reprinted the second edition books, right? For those that remember that. Is this third to 3.5? Is this 4E to 4E essentials? Like, what is this? They want to apply it. They want to use a historical template to apply this new core book thing. And the answer is there aren't there. The, all three of those were different, right, from each other. And it's certainly this new one will be different, too. There isn't a great metaphor for this. But one of the major differences uh, between this and uh, previous times is that almost I believe this is true. Almost always when there's been sort of this mid edition shift it's occurred when the sales dropped on an edition of D&D. So like when second edition had kind of stopped selling, I think this is true. When second edition had kind of stopped selling second edition books, they did the new version, the, the 2.5, which is like a cleanup version of second edition. Third to 3.5 might be different because I know that that was a big kind of strategic shift in how people thought about D&D. It went much more from sort of fuzzy to tactical in that one and lots of big fixes. And then it was like, oh, it'll be backward compatible. And then it wasn't. But I don't know if that took place with a with a sales shift, like, hey, no one's buying third edition. Let's put out 3.5. 4E to four to essentials was almost certainly due to, hey, flagging sales. We're not selling player's handbooks like we did. Let's, do, let's try something very different. And they did. Like, there wasn't even a player's handbook for D&D essential, for fourth edition essentials. Instead, there were two different player's handbooks that were digest-sized. Heroes of the 
I forget what they're called. Somebody will remind me. There are two, two different Heroes books. And the Heroes books were basically backward compatible fourth edition books that reprinted the core classes in them. It was really bizarre. It was a bizarre way to put out a, a book. And, and I actually thought it was excellent. I thought the design was excellent. I thought the, the format certainly was not great heroes of the feywild i want it wasn't heroes of the feywild it's like heroes of the forgotten kingdoms and heroes of the fallen lands or something like that i think it's fallen lands and forgotten kingdoms that sounds right anyway what's very different now is that as far as we can tell as far as all of the general information we have is there's nothing to say that fifth edition has flagged in sales there's nothing to say that it's actually not that that fifth edition is less popular than it's been. In fact, it continues to seem to be growing, and it seems to be growing in lots of different areas. There's the D and D movies. There's D and D nerds candy, right? Like, there's lots of areas where there might be a you know shark jump, but who knows? So, it doesn't seem like they're doing this because they're saying, well, we want to make sure sales on the old edition on the old versions of the core books are flagging, so we need to put out a new version of this. Now, in three years, who knows, right? Three years from now, we could anything could happen. But that's a big change, I think. And what does it mean? It means, I think, the, the, what's, the, what's the value of this whole diatribe, this whole conversation? The value is that we cannot use the past to tell us what the future is going to hold because it's actually a small data problem. There's not a lot of instances of this. We don't have 500 versions of D&D that we can look at and see how it happened and what the medians are. There was only like, you know, seven or eight versions of D&D, including all the subversions. And different people designing that, different people making choices. So yeah, DM Chromie brings up Critical Role, has a new animated show coming to Amazon Prime Video. That, you know, that means something, right? So yeah, it's, it's we, we don't know. The answer is we don't know what the future is going to tell about these Corbex. We don't know why they're doing it. I have theories. We all have theories about what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. Some of which I think I'll probably talk about with Sean tomorrow. And I bet you we could get some general guesses, right? I still think you can you can kind of look and say, like, I bet you the monster design is likely to be similar to the monster design that we're seeing in Monsters of the Multiverse. But it is still far enough out that if they get feedback on monsters from Monsters of the Multiverse, the Monsters of the Multiverse, if, if people say, like, oh, I really hated... I, 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 two, there's two major criticisms of Monsters of the Multiverse that I've heard, or the monster style that people are seeing. One is uh, it blows off Counterspell. And I have somewhere the smallest violin in the world for the people that love casting Counterspell because I'm not a big fan of Counterspell. And, but the other one, the other argument that I've heard, and this is one where my other, my other designer friends and I, uh, my other designer friends really brought this up, is that the idea of like, hey, we need to like come up with a new fireball every time we give a monster fireball, right? We don't want to just call it fireball. We want to give it like, you know, some new like Earth Scorcher, right? And Earth Scorcher for this monster is different than, you know, Ground Buster for this other for this other one, what was that? We're gonna turn, turn that off. I don't know what that sound was. So, so there are lots of you know. So they're, they're so they're they're coming up with like new spells that are unique to the monsters who cast them, which is very much like something they did with fourth edition. It's also something they did with the spells and the powers in fourth edition. That every power was different. You know, no single class had the same power that another class had in fourth edition. And that's something in fifth edition the design didn't do. So it's curious that they're doing it with monsters. And what does that mean? It means like, oh God, I gotta relearn everything every time. But on the other hand, it's like it's just monsters, and I only use them a couple times, so it doesn't really matter. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know that it, you know. So yeah, so they're not actually spells. They're spell-like actions, right? And that's why counterspell comes in. Can you actually counter a spell-like action that a 
caster style monsters casting and i don't know the answer is we don't know how that's actually going to play out in the long run it does mean that the monsters in the multiverse will be you know will be will be different so that's that's interesting and curious so we can look at like their designs over the next few books and that those designs will probably tell us what they're thinking about when we go forward and when we look at the new core books so you know so we'll see well a question that came up this is something that my my friend teos and i had a conversation about i i, I can't i think i talked about this a little bit on the show before and it was like what does the core the, the the core answer the question came up from like well are we worried about what wizards of the coast is going to do with the core books like are we worried about their design ideas and i'm like i'm not really worried because i still have my old core books and i can you know i'm a dm i have full authority to do whatever i want in my games and he's like yeah but as a member of the community aren't you worried the community is going to go off in one direction and you won't like it? And I'm like, I don't think so. Cause I'll just go whatever direction I want to go. Like, I'm not going to follow the community because I like the community. I mean, I like the community, but you know, and so, and, 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 you know, his, his feeling is like, it's been, it's good to be able to ride the wave of the big news of D and D. And I always kind of look at him like, oh yeah, but I want to kind of take a skeptical eye with all of this, right? Like I recognize that a lot of what wizards wants as the community is actually wizards of the coast marketing, right? And I don't know that to me that that's the D&D community. I also recognize that like on the other side, you have like, you know, OSR, right? The, the old school revival or old school renaissance. And that's its own community. And that, that actually, that in some cases, that community is great. In some cases, it's not so great, right? It, it can have its problems too. So what occurred to me when I was, when I had the conversation, I said, I don't care what Wizards does because I'm going my own way anyway. Maybe my way and their way will be the same. Maybe they won't. I don't care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go whatever direction I feel like I'm going. Right. And now that we see things like Level Up 5e, the, the N-World's new fully compatible D&D 5e version, we know that like Matt Colville is doing lots of things with game design. There's lots of major mammoth, relatively big companies now that are doing lots of different things with D&D. And they may all decide, you know, it's worth us making our own core books or our own version of D&D or our own thing. I think Level Up 5e is probably the first really big one to just jump right into the D&D space, right? There are certainly other 5e compatible books. I reviewed Esper Genesis, a science fiction 5e game. So there's, you know, the, the answer is like, not only do I think that we don't have to worry about the community getting fractured into different communities, I think we already have, right? I think there already are different communities. The critical role community is its own community. The MCDM, the um, Matt Colville Design Company, is that what I'm, I don't know what MCDM stands for? But MCDM, he has his own community. A bunch of people that like Matt Coville, right? There's all of these different communities. There's different communities that come up around streaming games. There's different communities that come up around play-by-post games. There's already so many. Because the, 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 the hobby itself is so big, there isn't one central community, right? There's multiple communities on Reddit, right? There's the DM Academy is different than DD Next. There's, there's, you know, Facebook has all these different groups. There are communities that are built up around individual adventures. There's the, the, the Rhyme of the Frostmaiden community. There's the, you know, the communities for all this stuff. There's the whole West Marches group, right? The West Marches community. So there's so many different communities and twitter's a weird one because there's no centralized com community in twitter because it's all based on who you follow and who follows you which means you have these weird networks that aren't necessarily uh one-to-one -one connected right it could be i connect here but you connect to me well is that a community not really like there's no there's no way to get your hand trust me i've tried i've i've got piles and piles of data right that that talk about like what the community of twitter looks like and their answer is there ain't one i studied this 
five years ago, I started looking at this and I've got data. I've got tens of millions of tweets in a big ass database that I can look at where I can look at all of who's following who and who's, who's been followed and, and build these community graphs. I think I can pull it up. Let me pull up my community graph here. Uh, I haven't done it in a while because I don't know that it matters that much. There was a, there was a time when like, you know, looking at this. So this is 2017. I did this. Look at that. Right. So what is that? It's pretty right? It's a real pretty graph. It actually took a long time to render this graph. This image is about, let's see, is there a huge, do I have a huge version of this? Or is this a huge version? Let's see if I can open this up and see how big it gets. Yeah, look how, look at the resolution in this. So what this represents is every, I think this is, I probably say, I think I say it in the article here. So this is a, a pull. Okay. Yeah. So this is a pull of D&D tagged tweets. And it was the minimum of three retweets from one group to the other. So anytime, every time you look at this, right? Let's, let's zoom way in here. Let's go way in. If you look at this little cluster right here, this, this node and this node, that means this person retweeted this person. I think, I think it had to be twice because if it was once, it was too many people, right? What this shows is, look at this, see this little cluster right over here, this blue, the light blue cluster with like four nodes and things. These are a bunch of people retweeting other people. So this is all one person retweeted another person, right? That's its own tiny little D&D community in there, right? It's this tiny little community. And guess what? In the total amount of data that I looked at, they had never retweeted anybody else, right? So that means like that, that, that community was pretty insular. And if you look at it, that is like most of the communities here are these little onesie and twosie communities. I should really do this again and with my new data and see. I'll probably wait till I have a year's worth. Look at this little community over here, right? That's its own little community. So then you get in, and is there a centralized cluster? Yeah, there is, right? Look at this, it looks like a supernova, right? And it's so big, you can't even tell, right? But there's this is like the centralized D&D. And then if you look at some of these guys, these weird like, you know, whoops. I'm lost, I'm lost in the multiverse. But look at these like weird clusters, these weird big communities that exist here. Look at this one where it like spreads out. Like what's this and this, right? And then it grows into this whole cluster of communities. What's that group about? So in my big ass data thing where I can look at it, I can actually read who's who, right? And figure this out. And it's pretty interesting. And then you get these, all of these are sort of major community. This would be like a critical role style community. This is older than that. Here's another, like these big communities. So it's, it's very pretty, I think. It's a cool way of looking at it. I'll paste this article so you can, you can see it. It's old, right? This article is back from 2017, so it's four years old at this point. Is this social network analysis? Yes, this is social network analysis. This is one, this is one level of social network analysis um, that I did, and it's basically just measuring retweets, right? But what it showed me back then, the reason why I did this all of this actually spawned from a conversation I had with my friend Enrique, Enrique Bertrand, the newbie DM. And we were, he was, we were not lamenting exactly. We were, we were discovering how the community of D&D was changing from fourth to fifth edition. And he said like, in fourth edition, I knew all of the people I could follow to, to hear what was going on in fourth edition. In fifth edition, I have no idea who I should be following or who's, what's going on where. And he was right. And I said, how do I even figure that out? So I was like, well, let me just start capturing tweets. And I set up a little listener on Twitter that just started pulling tweets down and it pulled down like, I think it was like 15 million. And then it broke, it broke for months. And then I started back up again. So now I'm, I'm close to another year's worth of tweets. And because it turns out it's really hard to pull down all those tweets when it's really fast. So I'm pulling them all down. I've got them in a big database and I can actually do things like measuring a tweet to a retweet ratio and do a thing like this. I did this with a tool called Gethy. If you're familiar, if you want to do a social network analysis with a tool called Gethy. 
And it took a long time to like build this thing. So I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know. People are asking if I'm going to update this. I don't know if I'm going to update it. We'll see. Because the answer is it doesn't really, what, 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 what's the point? Well, the point is there are many different communities and those communities in some cases are completely isolated, like that outer ring. In some cases they're, they're interconnected, but only through like one or two nodes, right? And what it means is there's lots of, you know, big, big fancy way of, of saying there are lots of D&D communities out there. And this was just Twitter. It's not Reddit. It's not Facebook. It's not YouTube. It's not any of the other major social networks. It's not TikTok. There's apparently enormous D&D TikTok communities I've never even seen. I've never, I've seen like one or two in my whole life, right? So there's massive amounts of communities. So what does this all mean? This all means that there really are many communities. And I think whatever D&D does, I'll, I'll, I'll make a prediction. My prediction is that very likely, I think it is highly likely that when they put out the new core books, there will be people who like the new core books and think they did a great job. And there are people who don't like them and like the old way, which means you've now created two communities, right? The old community and the new community, just around fifth edition. You have, we like the core books, we don't like the core books. And then there's a lot in the middle where like, oh, I like this from the core books, so I'm taking that, but I'm also, I didn't like this part, so I'm not including that. Like, what do you do when you have both books side by side, right? Like Tasha's, I'm allowed to choose what I want to include in my game from Tasha's. It says it in the beginning of the book. Although people get mad at me when I say like, yep, no Twilight clerics and no, 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 no Twilight, no peace clerics, right? And they're like, why? And you're like, because I'm allowed to pick what I want because it says in the book. So will people do that in, when the core books come out? Will they say like, I like these parts from the core books and I don't like these parts from the core books? I like, you know, I don't know. But I think we're going to see community splits anyway, but we already are seeing community splits. So it doesn't really matter, right? And, and a lot of us would be like, hey, whatever, I play D&D. If you look from the outside in, it doesn't matter if you're playing first edition or zero E or OSR or fourth edition, or fifth edition. Mostly from the outside, you're playing D&D, right? And, and so, you know, and I remember that for a long time, Wizards of the Coast was saying, we don't care if you play whatever version of D&D you play. If you're playing D&D, we're totally happy, right? I wonder if they feel that about Pathfinder though. I mean, who knows, right? So uh, somebody says, because Watsi is not in charge of my D&D fund. That is correct. D&D, Wizards is not. You don't have to follow Wizards to enjoy D&D. You can follow, you can choose what you want to enjoy about D&D. And I don't think we have to worry too much about communities and stuff like that, because there are so many individual communities out there and, and stuff like that. As a producer, there's the big question of like, well, what does it mean as a producer? Are, are, am I worried that like, you know, me writing books won't be nearly as popular because there'll be all these fractured communities? Maybe. But that's okay, because like I spent 10 years writing about this when nobody was buying my books anyway. So, you know, I think I think we'll be fine. And certainly, as my Kickstarter, as the the, the Slyflesh Kickstarter, the current Kickstarter is going on, it is way bigger than any of the other Kickstarters that I've done. We're almost, we're not at the point where we've hit the number of backers that backed the original Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. But we're really close, and we will almost certainly surpass that. So that, you know, I, so it's showing that it's certainly more, you know, what I've been doing has grown in popularity. So I think that's very interesting. The fudging hit points one. So this was interesting. Back two weeks ago, I don't remember. Time is weird now. Two or three weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago when they had the 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 D and D celebration, right? And this was the talk about the new books. This is where they announced the core books and all all that sort of stuff. And they had a panel on, I think, teaching D and D to new players. And Daniel Kwan was on there. Daniel Kwan is either the creator or one of the creators of the Asian Represents podcast for D&D. He has adventures in Candlekeep Mysteries, big, deep thinker about D&D stuff, and particularly representation in D&D, which is a really important topic. And he was on the panel, and they were going around the panel, and he said, he made this statement, and, and I think I'm going to, I don't want to misquote him, so I'm going to pull the tweet up that had it. 
Uh, and he said, here's the, here's the tweet he had. My secret is out in DD games. As, as adversaries go down when it makes a player look cool, especially if they try to do something super awesome, if it's narratively important or the table energy is decreasing, right? And Twitter kind of lost, some people on Twitter kind of lost their minds with this idea. They've really felt like, wait a minute. So his, what he was basically saying is, I don't use hit points at all. Right. I, I, when it's time for a monster to go down, the monster goes down. Right. So it was an interesting take and it, and a lot of people kind of, you know, went in different, you know, different degrees of hot. Some people thought, oh, that's great. Right. And then some people, you know, went, huh. Right. And, and to me, like the reasonable, there are, there are many reasonable ways to treat this. And then there are many unreasonable, all of which of course were done. The, the reasonable ones are like, oh, interesting idea, or, well, that's not quite how I do it, but that's interesting, or, well, I don't agree with that, and he can go his own way, and I'll go mine, right? Those are all kind of reasonable ones. Unreasonable ones are like, you're ruining D&D, or, I don't know, there were a bunch of goofy replies to this, right? A bunch of people that just kind of lost their minds about it, and it's like, A, it doesn't affect you at all, Right? What he, how he runs his game doesn't affect you. And B, he has some interesting points. So like I saw it and I was like, good radical take. Like that'll certainly, you know, shake people up and get some thoughts going about it. And then I, I'm like, well, I don't agree with that. Like I still track hit points. And I do think that, you know, if you're, there was a lot of talk on my, on the Sly Flourish Discord about this weeks ago. There's lots of talk in other areas about like, you know, is it is it disingenuous for a DM to do this when the players think that hit points are a solid thing, right? And I have made the statement many times that I think that hit points are a good dial for the for the DM to hang to have a hand on when we're running when we're running our games. I do not think it is bad to change hit points during a battle under certain circumstances. And I think that those cir- certain circumstances really fall into I guess it's really one category, which is pacing is the pacing of the game is the are the pacing and the beats of the game going in the right direction. And if they're not going in the right direction, hit points are one of the dials you can turn to get the pacing and the beats going in the right way. An example, a big example of that, probably the most common example of that is this battle is taking too freaking long. We're bored. Time is coming up. We're hitting the end of the session. All the monsters get, you know, all the dials go to the left. All the monsters have one hit point. The next hit kills them you know, they're, they're out and that way we can end this battle. To me, that is far superior to the, let's just call the battle right here that I hear a lot of times in, in public adventures league games. So to me, most of the time that you'd be yanking that dial is turning the hit point dial down to make a battle end after the big exciting parts have happened. And now it's just clean up. Right. And I think that that's fine. Are there times when you would turn the dial the other way? And certainly I think there are times where like, if you really had an expectation, even this, I'm, 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 I'm hazy about this one, right? That if you, if you have an expectation that you, you want a boss to really feel powerful and difficult and something, you know, a Nova occurs, a, a, a paladin hits it twice with two critical hits and, and does so much damage to it that it's going to die like too soon. You can turn the dial up the other direction. I probably rarely do that during a game because I think it's, I think that does take away from the idea of like if a paladin pulls off a really cool move 
and wipes out a monster and kills it, it should it should drop. I think that that's okay. I think that that's an interesting bit of drama. This is the Indiana Jones pulling out the gun and shooting the swordsman in Raiders of the Lost Ark idea, right? It can be cool. I will turn the dial to the right before a, a battle, and I don't think any, very few people have a problem with this, that we recognize that the hit points that are listed for a monster are average, and you can move the hit point dial up or down depending on those monsters. And you might look at a monster and say, yeah, I'm not, I think this monster is going to be too easy if I run it as is, given, given the kind of challenge rating I'm expecting for this. So I'm going to, I'm going to tweak the hit points up, right? Or I have six characters instead of four. So they're going to do a lot more damage. So I'm going to turn it up. I think that that's a a fine way of tweaking the, not that to me, that difficulty change is not very much different than saying, I'm going to put in a bigger monster, right? You're essentially creating a bigger monster. So I don't have a problem with that. But the idea of like not having hit points at all, that's not how I do it. I still have hit points. I still stick to the average most of the time. I just turn the dial left or right, depending on the pacing and beats of the game. Does this, do, do, I, read, do I read Daniel's tweet and it freaks me out? No, right? We can do it. And do I feel that a bunch of people are like, you're not playing D&D at that point. My favorite one, and this tweet got passed around a lot. So kind of picking on somebody else was, you know, if you don't track hit points, you're just playing make-believe. And it's like, yeah, we're already playing make-believe right? Yeah. We're sitting around a table talking about dragons and people throwing fireballs. We're already playing make-believe. You don't get to say you're playing make-believe wrong. I mean, you can, right? Or you can say, I don't like the way you play make-believe, but you know, come on. And, 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 and to then tell people like, you know, to then tell people like, well, you should just find a different game other than D&D. Well, maybe you should find another game other than D&D, right? Like, you don't get to tell me how I get to enjoy my D&D. And you don't get to tell me what I am going to say about D&D when I say it, right? And the same with Daniel, right? I, so I, I think his approach is fine. I think, I think it's interesting, right? I think we can learn from all of this stuff. Because I think, I think Daniel's points that he makes here in a very, you know, when you look at this tweet, it's a, it's a good tweet, right? When does he think about if he changed it slightly differently and said, I tweak hit points when it makes a player look cool, especially if they try to do something super awesome, or if it's narratively important or the table energy is decreasing. I, I, I agree with all of those. The only difference is I still have a hand on the hit point dial. And he's saying like, why even bother having a hand on the dial if you're going to do this stuff? Okay. Eh, so fine. You know, Anyway, I thought it was a very interesting topic. I thought, of course, you know, the reactions can you know, drive everybody bananas, but like your fun is wrong, right? And it's like, you don't get to tell, they, and, and to me, it's a cop out to then tell people, well, you're not playing D&D and you should play another game other than D&D, like Fate, where, where Fate doesn't have hit points and stuff like that. No, he gets to enjoy D&D. We all get to enjoy D&D and we're all designers. We all can do whatever we want with it. So... Yeah, so I thought it was a very interesting topic. And I think I've, I've talked about it before. I've talked about the dials of monster difficulty. You can see I have articles about it. I have videos about it. It's one of the chapters. It's one of the pages in the Lazy DMs Companion Kickstarter going on now. So there's lots of ways to do this. And I, you know, what I, I think is interesting is I, there's, there's people who are purists who believe that monsters have hit points. Once you've set them in place, they are sacrosanct. And whatever happens during the game, you don't change. And, and the argument there is like, well, what if you kill something? Like, what if you kill a character? And you were fudging hit points. Aren't, aren't you basically taking control of whether or not characters are dying without the dice handling it? It's like, ah, not really, right? And I'm not talking about big tweaks and I'm not talking about doing it all the time. So, you know, anyway, I thought that was a very interesting topic. It's been on my list for a long time and I wanted to talk about that. So I'm glad, cool stuff. So let's do some, we're gonna do a half hour of 
questions from Patreon. So if you are a patron of Sly Flourish and you can join and help support shows like this as, as a patron of Sly Flourish and get access to all kinds of exclusive stuff, including a brand new adventure, uh, an exclusive adventure for Patreon called Tomb of, the, Tomb of the Red Headsman, which is coming out. And I got another project, which I've been working on with the Discord, the Patreon Discord channel, an interesting little uh, experiment that I'm working on called One Sheet 5e. What if you had all of the rules to play a stripped down version of fifth edition on a single printed two-sided piece of paper. You can see that as a patron. Patrons can get access to that. It has not been released to Patreon, the Slyfoish Patreon yet, because I'm still playing with it, but patrons that are inside Discord have seen it. It was I, I did it yesterday. So all kinds of stuff like that. Anyway, one of the other advantages advantages of being a patron of Sly Flourish is we have monthly, we are now, pardon me, we are now doing monthly Q&As, right? And what I do is I put up a post and I say, any questions that you've got, post them here. I will read through them. I'll pick them. I will clean them up a little bit and we'll put them into the show and I'll answer them on the show and we'll do them on the show. So yeah, so we're going to do some right now. Gabor, Gabor H says, hail to my pal, Mike Shea. Hail to my pal, Gabor. Gabor, Gabor. I don't, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, mis, I'm probably certainly mispronouncing your sheet, your name. How do you handle the number of monsters with a range of challenge ratings? Like if I have five second level players and I want to throw a few quarter CR Rat Folk from the Tome of Beast by Cobalt Press. By the way, love that book. Yes, I love it too. And a CR1 Rat Folk Rogue. How many monsters is your suggestion? I know it depends on the situation and easily to modify on the fly, but I like to know your opinion. What is the most likely medium, hard, deadly starting scene? Uh, good, good question. This all gets into my topic of the lazy encounter benchmark. And one of the keys, so if we recall, just as a, a quick summary, I, after spending probably five good years thinking about how to do encounter design in 5e, looking at the original ones from the Dungeon Master's Guide, looking at the ones in Xanathar's Guide, and then and then toying, I think I've had three or four versions of my own that I've put out. I finally come down to one that I think works well enough. And the Lazy Encounter Benchmark does two things, and it has two steps, right? Its goal is to help you build an encounter and recognize if that encounter is potentially deadly. That's all it does. And it follows two steps. Step one is you choose the monsters, the number and the type of monsters that make sense for the situation first, which Gabor, Gabor mentioned in his thing, right? I know it matter. I know that we do it first from the, I know we do it first from the situation, but still I'd like to know about mixing different CRs, right? That's number one. Number two is you determine whether or not your, what you've created by the story, it could be inadvertently deadly, right? And we do this with a single sentence benchmark. And that single sentence benchmark is an encounter may be deadly if the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than one quarter of the sum total of character levels or half the sum total of character levels if the characters are above fourth level, right? So how does that work? It means once you've created your encounter, you've got your bunch of rat folk, you know, maybe you choose, you say, we're going to have eight rat folk, right? Eight rat folk. And oh, let's go back to the question here. So he says like, I, I've got quarter CR rat folk and I've got a CR leader rat folk and you might, and they're against second level characters, right? So second level and you have five. So the deadly encounter benchmark for that is five times two is 10 and then 10 divided by four is about two. So, so, you know, two CR is about the maximum number of total challenge ratings that you would want to throw before it starts to get into deadly, right? So if you say, like, what did I say? Eight rat folk? So eight, eight rat folk, the total CR for eight rat folk is two on its own, which means if you threw in a leader, it could be potentially deadly. 
And at second level, you're like, ah, I want to be a little bit easier with it. So you, you, you would then say, okay, I'm probably going to drop the number of rat folk to four. So there's four in a leader. And that's four in a leader would be two exactly, right? So that, that's probably a good hard battle. Uh, but I think that Gabor's question is really around how do you determine the number, right? They're like, doesn't the, it, it basically, doesn't the action economy change if you have like a lot of, because you could have eight rat folk, at CR one quarter, and that's two. Or you could have four and one leader, but that's five action turns versus eight action turns. Doesn't that matter? The answer is probably, but you know, we really don't know how things are going to go when we're actually running the game. If There's certainly a point where the action economy can really go against you, particularly at low level. If you have too many monsters at low levels, it could definitely be hard, even if they're low challenge rating. And particularly because like variance in power output of different low challenge like wolves are really hard right i think a wolf is a cr one quarter monster and a wolf will kick your ass right and a pack of wolves will kick your ass right they are really hard so so the number of monsters that's something you got to play by ear the 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 deadly encounter the lazy encounter benchmark it's it ignores the number of monsters in 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 for simplicity right it doesn't pay attention to action economy too much but it, that doesn't mean action economy isn't important, i.e. lots of monsters are going to be more dangerous than fewer monsters, right? Accounting for challenge rating. And that's something, so I guess like, you know, the, the encounter benchmarks don't take care of that. And your general thought is like, you, you, you know, anytime you have more monsters than characters, you know that the action economy is swinging in favor of the monsters and that could be a, a factor in the difficulty. Same way in the other direction. If you have one big monster, that's, even if it's a big monster, it's still going to be, likely less overall effective because it's only one right so yeah so i think that that's that's something to key into i'm sure that that is certainly there there are many sort of qualifiers about the the deadly encounter benchmark right and the in the article i have here assumptions right and there's there's it's imperfect right many variables change the difficulty of the character builds group synergy environmental effects player experience magic items particular spells abilities and so on one of those would be severe change in action economy which is probably not on that list but probably ought to be you know 25 sturges even though they're cr18 it's still 25 attack rolls right so yeah so so i wouldn't worry most of the stuff with with encounter building and a lot of this stuff and a lot of these sort of rules of thumb is don't worry about them too much they are loose they are loose grip tools they are meant to give you a general gauge and you're going to use your own personal experience and your knowledge of the characters and your knowledge of the situation to then kind of tune it there isn't a good mathematical pure solution that solves this there's so much variance in 5e there's so much variance between monsters of the same challenge rating like wolves wolves to rat folk very different right pack tactics and the ability to knock someone down really really powerful and wolves do a lot of damage too seven points of damage there's so much variance in other areas that there's no good mathematical way to really get your hands around it instead you're, you're gonna have to, you know you'll get experience and you'll use your own judgment and then things like the benchmark help because it's like it's way easier than doing all the bs math that's in the dungeon master's guide you know and you don't need an online tool you can just do it in your head i did it right here right i i gave an idea of like how many how many rat folks and rat folk rogue leaders are dangerous to group you know to second level characters and the answer is probably four rat folk and one leader is about right you know Thank you, Gabor. And I know, Gabor, you've, you've given me other questions too. It has been, a, it's been very fun uh, to talk to you. And good luck getting, getting, getting 
the D&D books translated. I, I hope they do that. Adam B says, what can I do at 20th level to keep the party going? My party recently finished Baldur's Gate Descent to Navernus. They're 13th level with no inclination to slow down. Most of us also play MMOs, so I think the expectation is to hit cap and keep on going. But I'm sure we're going to restart someday. But I expect they're going to want to at least one major story arc at 20th level. So if you want to keep it going at 20th or after 20th, uh, the boons that are in the Dungeon Master's Guide is one way to do it. I think you're probably in a very small number of people who actually get this high when they run their games. And good, it's, it's hard running games at this level. So boons are a way to do it. Something, and I, I think this kind of tears into some other, another question that we've got coming up too, is that the story, the story and the way you need to change the level of the threat from a story perspective changes so significantly. And at 20th level, you are really in there with the gods. When I ran a 30th level fourth edition campaign, right? They were like, Loth was their quest NPC, right? They were hunting down all of the elemental princes in their elemental planes. They were fighting, they had already fought one of the most powerful weapons ever built in the multiverse. They had defeated Orcus, who had become a god of death instead of just a demon prince of death. You know, so they had done so much stuff. The scope and the scale of these huge high level games was really, really big, right? And and you need to think about how big, I mean, it's in some cases, it's freeing. It's very like Guardians of the Galaxy, Thor Ragnarok level like threats, right? So you need to like scale the overall threat so that the story is interesting. You're not sending them down into like, you know, they're not going down to the basement to help Farmer Smith with his rat problem. Although I love this idea that like you go and and, and you you meet with, you know, the innkeeper and the innkeeper's like, yeah, I got this problem. And what? Like Orcus is down in my cellar, right? And he's causing, I can't get the cheese for the my patrons could you go down there and take care of Orcus for me? And they're like, yeah, we could do that. And then they go down and it's like Orcus is down there in the cellar, right? I thought that'd be kind of like a funny take on a 20th level. Like what's a 20th level version of a first level quest, right? Um, so to me, that idea of getting the story, you know, how do you, how do you scale the story up? It is a, it is a far off superhero story. It's a God story at that point, right? And there's, I, there's probably some good supplements about how to run God level adventures when you're, when you're, when you're doing your stuff. So yeah, but, but as far as like, I think that keeping the story interesting is probably your big one, but go God hunting is cool, right? And there's lots of like super high challenge rating monsters inside in, in fifth edition. There's many that are in third party supplements. Pick up 2C Gaming. My friend Ryan at 2C Gaming has tons of books about both how to scale levels up above 20th level, I think, and also the kinds of threats you would face. And they are monstrously powerful. So check out 2C Gaming's, 2C Gaming has a lot of stuff. The total party kill, Let's take a look. So they have Epic Legacy, you know, 21st to 30th level expansion for 5th edition. That's Epic Legacy. A total Party Kill Bestiary. And I think they have two, the tar Total Party Kill 1 and two, Total Party Kill 2, which focus on challenge ratings that are above 10th, 10th level. So I think, yeah, the Kickstarter, I think, for Total Party. Tyrants and Hellions. 15 villains completely. So check out, if you want, I would check out 2C Gaming. I, I've talked to Ryan often and I know, boy, is, he, is his head in high level stuff? And the answer is yes, it is. So, so check that out. Gustavo C says, I'm having thoughts of using the lazy encounter creation tables and creating some suitable, some suitables to flesh them out a little. Oh, sub tables. I'm sorry, not suitable. Sub tables. <laughs> I'm thinking this subtitle should be campaign or location specific. What do you think about this? Too much work perhaps, but even if some entries, sub tables can be used regarding other locations. So I think the idea here is like we have general random tables, particularly like the lazy DM companion has lots and lots of random tables, but can, is it good to make random tables that are either go one level deeper than that or ones that are tailored. And the answer is sure, but as Gustavo mentions, you probably don't want to 
put too much work into it because for you and your game, you already know what you need, right? And so you probably have seen in the lazy DM prep series that I've done, let's go, let's, let's take a quick look. I made some random tables for myself. Let's go to the, let's see, my a campaign archive and let's go to Eberron, right? So this is my Eberron second morning. We'll go to locations and we'll go to Esten, right? I know I did this a lot with Esten. There's Esten. And in Esten, I created a location. I created a, but this is where I first started getting into point crawls, right? And then traveling around Esten, going to different locations and seeing what was going on. Lots of descriptions about it. But one of the things I did is I created like a random set of monuments and a random set of encounters. But this was as much as I had done. I just sort of did a D12 list. And it was mostly to just get my own head around what we were doing. So like, I wouldn't write out deep encounters. I'd kind of like give myself prompts about what might happen and then let my own brain fill in the details when I needed them. Trying to build out like the equivalent of like the Waterdeep City Encounters book where they had like two or three sentence descriptions of 50 different potential encounters that could occur in different neighborhoods. That's too much, in my opinion, too much work for a lazy DM, right? You don't need to... I think I think one of the areas where DMs and where DMs can get caught up is in the idea that like you're not writing for publication, right? I didn't I'm not going to publish this, right? I'm not putting it in a book. This was for me to prompt my own brain to come up with stuff when I'm running the game. Which means I don't need to fill a lot of stuff out cuz I know if I say living spell, I don't need to say which kind. I'll go figure it out, right? Or I'll come up with my own. Or I'll I'll do I'll I'll, I'll do things. So I think it's easy for a DM to get trapped into like writing stuff like they're, they're mimicking a published adventure. So they're writing things like it's a published adventure, but it's not. You're not supporting 7,000 other groups. You're only supporting your own. You don't need to write an adventure. You can just jot some stuff down. I think that's one area where the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master does well. Is like It says like you don't have to fill all that stuff up, right? Just write some things down. But on the other hand, I'm a big believer in like the write, write a list of 10 things, right? That if you're having trouble thinking about like what kind of encounters could occur when the characters are traveling through the island of Solstice, Rime of the Frost Maiden, you could do worse than say, let me come up with 10. Let me go for a walk and I'll come up with 10 potential encounters. And you go through them and you go, oh, that one's really cool. That's a good one. And you might throw them all away and say, that's the one I'm going to do, right? That idea, to me, that idea of writing down 10 things uh, really is a great way for your brain to just hammer stuff out. And, and, and usually you struggle a bit. And the ones you struggle with, you come up with some really interesting ideas. So subtables, sure. The only thing I would question is like, don't write like you're publishing it for other people, right? Like you're just using it yourself to prompt, to prompt your brain. I hope that helps. Swing Set Park says, since most 5e adventures go from level one to eight or level one to 10, it seems that most DMs and players have little to no experience with games at higher tiers. Yeah, we were just talking about that. How does a DM prep change when you get to tier three and tier four? levels of play what what would you have what would have to be true or what would have to change about 5e to make higher level play viable manageable and just as fun as lower tiers good that's a good question that's a hard this is a hard question so there's a there's a big chick I, I get into many debates about this and i have an opinion about it so maybe this is the hot take there's a there's a question of the chicken and egg of 5e and high level play we i think it's pretty well accepted and almost all of the information that we've heard almost all the data that we've ever gathered says that most groups don't get past 10th level right that they they, they probably there's a there's a real left tail curve left left skewed curve for the number of games and the levels that those games go 
And the, the big question is why, right? And lots of people have different opinions. One of the opinions is, well, because they have not put out published adventures that go to high levels, people don't play games at high levels. So that's the problem. If only Wizards would put out more 20th level adventures, we'd have more 20th level games. Every designer I've talked to who has written adventures and who spent time in this industry says that that is not the case, right? It's not, it's not a matter of them doing it because they have, right? And they think uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage goes to 20th level, right? But no one, oh, well, that one doesn't count, right? Well, I don't know why. It's 20th level adventure. But uh, an example is my friend James Intercasso wrote, I think the, yeah, I'll go with it. The best 20th level adventure I've ever played in, certainly, was uh, Invasion from the Planet of Tarasks, a 20th level adventure that James Intercaster wrote as part of the Guild of Death program. And in it, you you not only fight multiple Tarasks inside Waterdeep, you actually go to the planet of Tarasks and see 100 Tarasks, right? And it's a 20th level game, and it was brilliant, and it was so much fun. And it's just this great, talk about like a super heroic adventure. It was outstanding. And it's so many great examples of of things that I bring up often. And he also wrote Cellar of Death, a first level adventure that is the intro adventure to Tomb of Annihilation. And Cellar of Death sold like a hundred to one over Invasion of the Planet of Tarasks, right? And he's like, look, I love both adventures. I work really hard on both adventures and, and Cellar of Death sells like crazy and Invasion of the Planet of Tarasks hardly sells at all, right? So I don't think it's a matter of not having 20th level adventures. It's the fact that there's no market for 20th level adventures. And I, I tend to agree with that. I think that the, the, I don't think the chicken and egg is Watsy needs to put out more 20th level adventures and then people will do them. I don't think it's enough. So then why, what's the other reason? And part of it is like, it takes a long time to get to 20th level. 20 levels is actually a lot of levels. It's really, and, and it gets harder to run D&D at higher levels. I had this happen. I'll probably talk about, maybe talk about this in my in my prep game, but my characters in Frostmaiden just hit seventh. And as much as I thought that fifth level was a big shift in the power of characters that you saw the, the lazy encounter benchmark changes how difficult a combat encounter might be at fifth level right? It goes from one quarter of character levels to one half of character levels. Basically says they can handle twice as many guys as they could have handled one level below. And that's because of spells like fireball and multi-attack and other things that characters get at fifth level. I'm starting to find that seventh level is another huge jump. And it's because of spells like polymorph. It's like spells like uh, banish, right? It's the first time that like a huge monster can come out. And if it's charisma is low, they can banish it. And, it, and it's gone. And then they all wait and they say, okay, we're going to set all this stuff up and then it comes back and then it comes back and they beat the hell out of it. That my, my, my group on Wednesday did that to an abominable Yeti. They were fighting a bunch of regular Yetis and then an abominable Yeti came up and this, and it breathed on them and it did a bunch of damage and then they banished it and then they all prepped and it came back and they beat the hell out of it, right? They polymorphed, they used a mixture of banish and polymorph. They banished it, got an itchy nose. They banished it and then polymorphed their fighter into a mammoth and then drank a potion of speed on the mammoth and the mammoth had cast moonbeam ahead of time and could still continue concentration. So it became the moonbeam speed mammoth maneuver. And it did like 96 damage on its own between the moonbeam, two different stomp attacks and a tusk attack on, on a prone target. Cause they put grease on the ground. So then it slipped as soon as it fell, it, 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 it fell down as soon as it came out of banish, right? Fell down on its ass and then hit, got hit by the moonbeam, and then Tusk and two attacks, and it did like 96 damage and killed it. Really cool, really funny. But man, as soon as you throw these new spells in, everything kind of changes. The whole threat level changes. Like you go from like 
a normal monster, a single big normal monster can be a threat to no, it really can't because Banish can just get rid of it right away. So the prep change of answering this question, the Moonbeam Speed Mammoth Maneuver, answering this question, most of the prep change changes when you need to shift the scope and the scale of the story, right? You can't run the same kind of adventures. Your characters probably aren't wandering around in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in the wilderness looking for old tombs and then going into old tombs. Once they hit tier two, really get into tier three, the threats are much bigger. Tier three are world level threats, right? Tier three is when you're like, your Tiamat's coming, right? T tier three is Fae, you know, the, the red wizards of Fae led by the Lich Zastam are overtaking the Daelins. And they've already taken like three cities, right? And you're going to have to go in and do big stuff to go face against that group. Tier four is almost always multiverse and planar, right? You are going to hell. You're going to the abyss. You're going to limbo. You're, you're sailing through the astral sea. You're dealing with big threats. A lich is not a major threat at tier four. A lich is one, maybe the lich, maybe a Sararak, right? Like the arch liches, but you know, you really need to, the scale of the story is not a linear curve, right? It is a spiked, it is a big asymptotic curve. And the scale of your story is, is going up by orders of magnitude, not just linearly, but orders of magnitude, right? It's village, kingdom, world, planar. And I think that you, you really need to think bigger, we all need to think bigger when we run tier three, tier four kind of adventures when we do our prep, that the scale needs to be bigger. You know, I had at one point it was, when we were in tier three, the characters were hunting down the phylactery of a very powerful draconic uh, wizard that wasn't quite a lich yet, but she had still managed to put her soul in another thing. She was getting herself ready to become an undead, uh, an, an undead lich. And she had hidden away her phylactery in a meteorite floating in the middle of the astral sea that was basically invisible unless you knew where it was. And they had to go around the multiverse getting clues about trying to find where this thing was. And at one point they went to, this was in Storm King's Thunder, they went to a planet. They, they found a planet that they sailed to on their, on their astral, on their plane, on their, on their spell jammer, right? And the planet was completely desert that had these huge monuments all around it, this entire desert planet with these huge monuments. And the monuments were to a Sararak. And they said, oh my God. And there was all this stuff about, the, all this ideograms, all this iconography of people worshiping a Sararak as a god. And they're like, well, a Sararak doesn't care about people worshiping him. He's not a god, right? And they're like, yeah, he didn't care. And he ate the whole planet, right? So they found a dead planet that a Sararak had just literally sucked the entire life out of for whatever power he had. That was giving like a glimpse of like tier three, tier four level things. When entire planets are dying, that's a tier four problem, right? And when you can go back and be like, wow, you know, here's a planet that, you know, 700,000 years ago was destroyed by the same arch lich that we're dealing with now. That gives you an idea of the sense of scale. So I think that like that sense of scale is really what you need to be hanging on to. And when you're running these like big tier three, tier four, what could fifth edition do to make high level play more viable? 
probably dealing a little bit with some of the saver suck spells you know getting getting into like a minor thing there are certain spells like force cage banner you know some of the bigger tier it's not even not even tier three or four it's tier two you know there there are certain spells that are are just make it much harder to run the same kind of adventure we want to run another angle is like what 13th age and shadow of the demon lord did which is they just reduced the levels down to 10 instead of 20 and they still have the same scale of the game a 10th level shadow of the demon lord character a 10th 13th age character is the equivalent to 20th they just compress the levels and you get a lot more stuff per level so instead of saying what can fifth edition do to make dnd more more playable at higher tier another answer and i know i think earlier in the show i was like you should play another game but another game to try out is 13th age because it manages to get to these really high level things quicker because it's only 10 levels of play and it's still a d20 game and it's a really good one so if you like fourth edition and you like high level play and you like high power play i i would definitely recommend 13th age it's really good what could wizards do i think they would really have to uh look at certain spike there's certain spiky areas in fifth edition that make it considerably harder for a dm to run to run the game and they'd have to kind of deal with those spikes and again like some of those pure saver suck spells are one of them probably figuring out a way to beef up legendary monsters a bit i mean i'm hoping that a lot of the way that they're looking at new legendary monsters and monsters of the multiverse might help like monsters of the multiverse we talk about high level support probably a good chunk of the book that's coming out in just a few months right four four months or so three months three four months monsters of the multiverse which is going to reprint a lot of old monsters that are in Morden Canaan's and Volo's Guide plus other places, they're, and they're going to redo them, that could have a lot of really good high-level support, a lot of monsters. What is 13th Age? 13th Age, I was going to do a review for it. I'm going to do a review for it in a future show, probably next week. 13th Age is a role-playing game designed by Rob, Rob Hainso and Jonathan Tweet, two former designers of D&D for Wizards of the Coast. One did 3rd edition and one did 4th edition. They got together and they put together their love letter to D&D, which is a really excellent single book based RPG that I really love. And I played it a lot and I really adore it. So I will, I will do a full review for it next week. You want to see more about, you want to see more about 13th age next week. I will do a full review of it. Oh, we are in an hour, but I want to do one more question. One more question, and then we were going to call it a day. Uh, this is from Luci Luciano N. I can't remember all the spell details. I usually stop to read the descriptions during gameplay. Do you study your player's spells at some point before running a game? You can. I, I, I don't worry about it too much. One is, in my experience, in my experience, we learn. We learn about what the spells do. We'll eventually remember that a fireball is 86 fire damage, right? We'll remember about how the players are, are, are going to tend to pick similar spells multiple times. It's not likely we're going to see a lot of new spells all the time. When they level up, it can't hurt. But it's okay to be surprised too, right? And, and you don't have to count on... We don't have to count on our own ability to remember a spell because the player is the one that can remember it. So the other thing is like having D&D Beyond in front of you helps because you can just look up a spell real quick. One thing that I've noticed though is as a dm one of the adjudic thing the levels of adjudication we have to do is remember is make sure that the player reads the whole spell description because sometimes the key components of a spell description are at the end of the spell description and they read the first part and skip the second part about like where it doesn't work or what it doesn't work with right so in some cases we need to know oh can't i cast charm person on a werewolf no because they're not actually a humanoid right so you know there are areas where you want to make sure to be able to read it there are many times where you'll eventually be able to remember it. 
having a tool on hand, and I think it's okay to stop and look it up. I don't think it like kills a game to say like, well, let's take a look at it real quick, right? It's still a game we're playing here, and it's okay to like stop for a second and say, let's just go read, let's all go read the spell description and see what's going on. I don't think that's so bad, right? I don't think like the pacing has to be so hot that a minute you have to stop to pick up a book and read. Like, let's all just relax, right? So I think that, I think that that, I think that that can matter. So yeah, I think my answer to memorize, let yourself be free to memorize them as they show up. You'll probably learn the popular ones. You'll, you'll remember what spirit weapon does. You'll remember what spirit guardians does. You'll remember what healing word does. You'll remember what fireball does. You'll remember, you know, a lot of spells that you'll just eventually pick up as they go. Go ahead and look them up when you need to look them up. D&D Beyond can really help because it's really fast to look up spells. And even if you're not subscribed to D&D Beyond and have it, you can get all of the SRD spells are in there for free. So you can look those up very quickly. You know, you can look those up really quickly, even D&D Beyond, even if you don't own the, uh, any D&D Beyond books. And there's other online apps too, right? There, there are many phone apps. Lion's Den is a group. They do a bunch of different encyclopedia, D&D encyclopedia books. Really good, fast app that you can have on your phone. So looking them up is, is, is a, good, uh, a good way to go. I think we are all set for today. I want to thank everybody for coming today. For those of you on Twitch, stick around. I'm going to be doing my lazy DM prep for Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. For those of you watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. If you are supporting the Lazy DMs Companion Kickstarter, thank you so much for your support there. Thanks again to the patrons of Sly Flourish for making all of this possible. And tomorrow, Monday, the 11th of October, and again, if you're watching this or listening to this later, you can listen to Mastering Dungeons or maybe see the video up on, on my YouTube channel. I will be on the Mastering Dungeons podcast, which we will be broadcasting live on Twitch on 11, on 11 October at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I hope to see you there. So thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.